Thanks for joining us for season three of the Hospitality Hangout, a hospitality-focused podcast where the founders of Branded Strategic share their insights and bring technology and innovation leaders that are making things happen in the industry we love. My name is Jimmy Frischling, also known as The Finance Guy, and I'd like to introduce my partner and friend, Mr. Michael Schatzberg, also known as The Restaurant Guy. Thanks for that uh, great introduction, Jimmy. And to all those listening, feel free to call me Shatsy. Together, we are the personalities behind the Branded Strategic Hospitality. We work at the intersection of hospitality, technology, innovation, and capital. You know, Jimmy, before we get going with our guest today, I've got something to talk to you about. You want me to talk about it with you? You know, Shatsy, I have no idea uh, what you're going to discuss, so shock us all, surprise us. Jimmy, we launched a marketplace over here at Branded, and I don't know if you know about it, but I'm going to talk a little about it real quick. We launched a digital e-commerce marketplace. It is a platform built by operators, that's us, for operators, that's everybody that could be listening, and it will feature, it features, I should say, it, Jimmy, it's got all the best-in-class technology solutions and innovation for hospitality owners and operators. We've got over 120-some-odd companies on there. It's a one-stop shop. It's really, uh, it's a great, it's a great experience. We're super excited about it. It's the brandedmarketplace.com for all our listeners. Anyone interested in joining the marketplace as a seller, uh, marketplace at brandedstrategic.com. Just email us at marketplace at brandedstrategic.com. We'll get you all the information you need to try and get you uploaded. Uh, and I got to tell you something, we're adding professional service providers, Jimmy, and suppliers. So it's really exciting. So Jimmy, when you get a chance, Check it out, okay? I'm going to check this out. This sounds too good to be true. This butt cost a million dollars. Jimmy, 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 yes. no charge. No charge. Stop the presses. Mm-hmm. Stop the mic. All right. Is that, are we yeah, done with this shameless it. plug? We're, We're done, done with that shameless okay. plug. All right, excellent. All right, good. Because we got a hell of a guest, and I want to make yeah. sure we give him uh, the time and attention that, that he deserves. We are very excited about today's episode. Our guest today is Mr. John Rigos. He's the co-CEO of Orify Brands. And literally, from the uh, from our from our standpoint, it branded uh, owner and operator of restaurants, investor in tech and restaurant. He's a brother from another mother, so to speak, literally all over this asset class and given what's going on in the industry and what he's been doing at Orify and the whole team over there, we couldn't wait to get this conversation started about restaurants, about technology. He's a good friend of ours. Let's introduce Mr. John Rigos. We'll let him take the lead, introduce himself and Orify, and we'll jump into this podcast. All right, fellas. Well, uh, thank you for the introduction. Uh, pleasure to be here. My name is John Rigos. I'm the co-CEO of Orify Brands. Um, Orify, it has evolved a little bit since the onset of the pandemic, but you know, historically what Orify has been is a uh, uh, we built a platform of super talented people, you know, across all the functional areas, marketing, technology, culinary, to support young brands, to help them, you know, develop their concepts, grow them, and uh, hopefully have a national presence. Uh, that's been the thesis behind Orify. Um, and what we realized, uh, you know, about a year or so ago was that, you know, developing and investing in technologies that supported our portfolios. Uh, was also really paramount to how we can help execute and grow our businesses. So we started uh, investing proactively in different technologies to support our brands. That was pre-pandemic. Um, when the pandemic hit, our, our model evolved. Um, you know, listen, I think we all that are in this business uh, were incredibly hard hit and kind of surprised by the magnitude of what it meant with the pandemic and the onset. Um, I remember very vividly in early March when you know, the word started spreading that this thing was real and that there was potential to close restaurants. I think everybody was skeptical that would actually happen. And sure enough, I think it was March 13th where everything started going on lockdown. Schools were closing. There was so much uncertainty. There was a lot of fear. 
Um, and our mandate right away was, hey, let's triage, let's stabilize, let's uh, really understand what's going on and prepare for what may be a very difficult uh, you know, future. Our structure is Orify is our holding company. We have um, five discrete brands in the portfolio, which I'll get to in just a little bit. Each one is helmed by a CEO who's responsible for their business day to day. You know, the, the initial mandate was stabilize and then start to prepare for what may be a very difficult run. And that's when the brands went into motion to start thinking about how do we evolve and how do we prepare for all this uncertainty. Um, we at the platform level started saying, okay, we have our brands kind of protected at this point. Where are the opportunities now um, where we can, um, you know, get involved and, you know, identify great brands that we could potentially acquire? So while our brands are worrying about evolving their businesses in this environment, we started looking at, you know, potential acquisition targets that we could add onto the platform. One of the nice things about how we're structured as a platform is we can pr pretty readily do a, a bolt-on acquisition to leverage the platform and integrate into our portfolio, I think, more red readily than a typical restaurant company. A typical restaurant company, there's a management team that supports the growth of that brand. We have that at each of the brand levels, but we also have this platform above them that kind of supports the brand. So when, you know, when we started looking at the market and what was happening in the summertime, you know, there were some amazing brands out there that just didn't have the right balance sheets or liquidity to enable them to weather uh, the pandemic. And that's when we basically, you know, started looking for opportunities, um, given our access to capital to uh, to identify great brands to add to the portfolio. And, and that's basically the tact we took uh, this summer and continue to do so today. Hey, John, thanks so much. I think, Jimmy, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, John has summed it up, and I think that'll be it for the podcast. I mean, there's nothing really else to talk about. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. No, come on, Chad. <laughs> so come on. Come on, Chad. Dig in there a little you know, bit. Work hard. Work for the got, money. I'm teasing. We've got so much. There's so much more to get into. But before we dive into the restaurants, because there's really a lot there, you know, I used to be – I wasn't always uh, the restaurant guy. I was, uh, I was a Garmento for all you New Yorkers out there. I was a Garmento. And John, you had a different professional life before you got into, I mean, we've had drinks many a time. You got into uh, restaurants in, in a different uh, position. You uh, started in a different industry entirely. So give us a little bit of background, how you how your journey went from, I think you were, you were in finance, you were in music. I mean, I forget all the different things you did, but you've done a lot of things before you got into uh, hospitality or if I can give us a little uh, summary of your professional journey. Sure. So, yeah, it, a journey it has been for sure. Um, it's a bit Forrest Gump-like, to be honest with you. I, after college, I was in investment banking for a few years, uh, which I really enjoyed. And I think it was a really good learning experience to understand capital structures and businesses and growth. And, and then that evolved into, um, you know, the early mid 90s when the Internet was happening. And I jumped ship from banking and got into Internet 1.0. Um, and had launched a music company, which is basically a predecessor to what iTunes is today. We were licensing digital content from record labels before anybody knew what digital content was to distribute over the internet via downloads or whatever it was. Then I joined a technology incubator. Uh, this was at 99, 2000. Uh, it was the granddaddy of the technology incubators, which was basically the idea behind it was, hey, get a bunch of really smart, passionate people in a room provide them with the resources, you know, legal, technology, marketing, branding, uh, and brainstorming and ideas to test concepts. And if anything got traction to try to launch a business, this was the wild west back in, you know, the early days of the internet where any idea was a new idea and may have had some merit. So we we're exploring that. 
uh, as you guys may recall, I don't know if you're as old as I am, but you know the world kind of imploded in 2000, 2001. The markets crashed, and a lot of these high-flying internet companies came tumbling down. Uh, that's when my partner Andy and I had reset and started looking at investment opportunities. And we started investing passively into franchises. So we'd invested in some subways and some Dunkin' Donuts and things like that. Uh, and we enjoyed them because they were established brands that had, you know, real uh, attachment with customers. So we, we started to appreciate the value of those brands. That's when we started looking for new opportunities and came across um, a beauty business, which, uh, you know, tremendous brand, but terrible business. And that, that's one of the things my partner, Andy, and I always say is, you know, we could work with a great brand that has a crappy business. If you got a crappy business, it's hard to make it into a great brand. So we did identify a uh, beauty business called Kevin O'Quan which my wife, she was a stylist at the time, said, oh my God, he's like the godfather of the beauty business. So we knew that there was real attachment from a customer standpoint to the brand. It just needed to be cleaned up. So we brought in a talented team, brought in capital and helped grow that business. And around this time, you know, we were still looking at our franchise portfolio that we invested in and realized, hey, you know, the world's evolving in terms of the food industry. These franchises are great, but then you have brands like Chipotle, which take it to a whole new level. And I think that was the advent of basically fast casual versus fast mm -hmm. food. Mm -hmm. And we started examining what did Chipotle do so well? And basically what they did was they took an existing business uh, and just elevated it in all respects. So the food was better. The experience was better. The, the quality was better than mm -hmm. anything else you would get. And it's all in kind of a fast casual environment. And we started thinking, hey, why don't we leverage um, the, the experience we had at the technology incubator and create basically an incubator focused on the fast casual world. We thought all food categories would start to develop elevated um, experiences around each of the existing fast food chains into a fast casual world. So we started uh, developing our own concepts. The first concept we launched was uh, Melt Shop, which is basically artisanal you know, high quality sandwiches with great ingredients. Uh, Melt Shop is now about 20 locations, nation, uh, not nationwide, mostly in the Northeast. Uh, we also launched uh, The Little Beat, which is a healthy, fast casual concept in 2014. Basically, it's funny thinking back, people were very skeptical about the idea of having healthy fast food. But as you know, so many concepts have since emerged that basically do that. Mm -hmm. Yes, the price points are a little higher because the quality of the ingredients are higher. Uh, but people are willing to spend more for what they know is a wholesome, high-quality product, um, you know, that's healthy for you as well. So we developed Little Beat. Uh, we're at about 20 locations between Little Beat and Little Beat Table. It's a sister company, which is a full-service format. Uh, we also launched Feels Good Chicken in 2014, which is basically uh, in the better-for-you chicken category. So, you know, quality chicken, roasted, brined, nothing fried, surrounded by really great sides, composed salads, things like that. Uh, we also happen to be the Five Guys franchisee. So we, we have a, a broad type of offering within our portfolio. We own the, the Five Guys in New York and Brooklyn. We have 15 locations. Um, I think so the Five of, Guys is probably your healthiest brand at Five, if I may say. Absolutely. So listen, I mean, <laughs> you, 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 you can be healthy 80% of the time, but you always want to indulge a little bit. And I think, you know, between Melt Shop and Five Guys, you know, they're great compliments to eating salads. So I agree. We, have, we have a broad offering in the portfolio. How many beets can I eat? I actually think I may have discovered one of my challenges. I'm going healthy 20% of the time and unhealthy 80. So <laughs> Jimmy, that's <laughs> the problem. That might right. be the problem. Unsustainable model. I might have to I might have to rethink this. All right, John, I have to tell you, this is season three of the podcast. I think we've done like over 30 episodes. We've had some great guests. 
And I think this might be the most important question that I've ever asked. So not to put any pressure on you, but this is going to help a lot of my members of my family. What exactly is it that you do? Um, <laughs> that's a good because, so much, but so little. Right. That's the question I get, which is you're in the restaurant business, but you don't actually run any restaurants. So, Jimmy, what do you do? And the I realized chef, having, you, having you as a guest, I could actually get you to give an answer that I might be able just to play for my family. So, John, what is it <laughs> that, that you do? Because you don't run the restaurants as you just articulated. So, yeah. So you're asking a question that's posed to me all the time, even from good friends of mine. They're like, wow, you guys are growing. How do you run each of the restaurants? <laughs> I know my buddies that run a restaurant have to deal with people calling in, out, you know, like they're not coming in or they're late and right. all the logistics. I'm like, I don't do that. Now, the truth is restaurants are kind of in my DNA. My father um, is a Greek immigrant who came over from Greece post-World War II. And like many of the Greeks at the time were working in restaurants. So he literally was a waiter till the day he died about 20 years ago. And the funny thing is, before he passed away, I had never had any interest in restaurants at this point. He said to me, one bit of advice I'll give you is whatever you do, don't get into the restaurant business. And, <laughs> and poor guy, you know, he's probably rolling in his grave now. But, you know, I'm not actually running the restaurants. I, I mean, I've spent some time in our restaurants to appreciate what it means to be behind the line and serving customers and prepping. But ultimately, you know, we're running a business. And, you know, with any business that's at scale, it's all about creating the right organizational structure, right? So you need to build the right team with clear accountability and reporting and systems and all that. That's And that applies to any business. We happen to be in the restaurant business. And, you know, unless it's in your DNA to, to run a restaurant, it's very difficult to do. So I have tremendous respect for our teams, people that are on the front lines every day, serving customers, you know, making sure the run, restaurants run right. But, you know, another interesting thing that someone once shared with me was you can have two restaurants, catty corner from one another, identical in all respects, one of them is killing it, making a lot of money. The other one's getting killed and losing money every day. And it's so true. The business is very difficult to run and to run profitably. So, you know, all the point being, you know, it's a fantastic business. It's a lot of fun. It's great serving people. Um, and when we decided to jump full on into the business, it, there were a few reasons for it. One, you know, as you can see on the journey that I took in terms of my career, one thing that we've always been attracted to um, is just great brands. And if you could develop a great brand or acquire a great brand, you could do a lot with it. Because you could you could leverage that IP in many ways to service your customers. And you know, that, clearly that's the case with restaurants. People attach to different brands for different reasons. But every brand that we've invested in and have grown. You know, it, it stood for something and it was very clear what the messaging was and it appealed to customers. And we wanted to make sure we nurtured that relationship with all our customers. So, you know, I may, I'm in the business, although I'm a little bit removed from it, but I'm passionate about John's the ideas guy. We need an ideas guy, Jim. Yeah, this guy. All right. <laughs> I love it. Right. Yeah, you know, John, I think it's pretty it's pretty funny. Uh <laughs> Your dad gave you one bit of advice. Don't get in the restaurant. That's the advice he gave. You got like 250 restaurants now. So not that many yet. You right. need his advice. Yeah, I don't know what he would say. Well, let me ask you something. I, I just want to jump into, uh, you mentioned the melt shop. You mentioned Field Goods Chicken. You mentioned Little Beat, uh, Five Guys, brands we all love and know, especially here in New York City. You left out something really important in this conversation of the brands, and I think it's a big one that we've got to talk about because I know people are really interested in this. La Pancotien LPQ, Maison Kaiser, 
two brands, certainly a big presence here in New York City. Somehow, in the middle of a pandemic, you had the idea to buy Le Pan Cotien at a bankruptcy and then buy Maison Kaiser at a bankruptcy. And now you came up with the idea, you're going to smoosh them together. Can you give us, the listeners and us, a little bit of what were you thinking? How'd you do it? And the rationale of now combining them two. Give us a little bit about this because this is really sure. an incredible Wait, story. John, before you jump in, Shati, is that the restaurant M&A terminology that uh, everyone uses, the smush? Is that what I heard you say? I think you that asked, is, John, that how is, did you smush them together? Yes, Jimmy, you were the finance okay, good, guy. So it. I know it, it, it. at Columbia MBA, they didn't teach you using a smush. But did you guys, smush was the, uh, that was the word we went with. Thank you. As long as John understood what you wanted. Smush, John, go ahead. Got it. Understood. That's a technical term. Yes. So listen, again, during the summer, um, when everybody was just in kind of panic mode, but started to appreciate the severity of the situation, we did pivot very, you know, strategically to say, okay, while the world may be imploding, there are clearly going to be opportunities and we are fortunate to have a great investor behind us, a group called Eldridge Industries, that appreciated the situation and wasn't afraid to take risks when others were kind of running away. So we proactively just started looking in the marketplace for brands that uh, were great brands, uh, but were struggling on the liquidity side. Could we get, you know, could we find an opportunity that was compelling? The Panka TDN um, at one point was, I think, the bellwether restaurant brand in the United States, obviously, it, it came out of Europe, it came to the US in a big way. There were about 100 locations nation, nationwide, primarily concentrated in New York, LA, uh, and DC. I got to tell you, John, at one point, I ate there, I think one of the first stores, maybe downtown, I think. And mm-hmm. I didn't even know it was a chain. I, Soho. I, I didn't, it was that, it, yeah, it was that good. I sat at the big table and I thought it was a single unit mom pop like French restaurant. It was incredible. Yeah, amazing brand with tremendous legacy. But like what often happens, it's a lot of times, you know, um, brands get a little tired and maybe, you know, and the right investments are not being made. Maybe the teams aren't being cultivated the way they, they need to. The company was sold to a private equity firm in 16 at a big number. And unfortunately, over the ensuing years, it lost a lot of what made it really special for various reasons. And I won't get into the particulars, but a lot of decisions at the management level were made that I think kind of um, – you know, just kind of crushed a lot of what made the brand so special. So over the the next few years, the brand did, you know, lose some of its market share. Maison Kaiser showed up in its home market in New York and obviously had a big presence in the city. Uh, so when we realized that that brand with such a legacy, such brand value and tremendous customer loyalty, that that brand was struggling I mean, that was just a testament to how hard the market was for everybody. So we viewed it as an opportunity for us to acquire the brand. Um, and, you know, basically the way the bankruptcy process works, which was new to us, is either the company was going to go bankrupt or it needed capital, and it's called dip financing, capital to take it through the bankruptcy process. Um, and we agreed to be that capital provider to pay for the process through bankruptcy. Um, so the beauty of the bankruptcy process, it labels you to revisit all of your contracts and in the restaurant business, obviously, that's primarily leases. So the, over the ensuing you know, 30, 60 days, once we started the bankruptcy process, you know, we started negotiating with all the landlords. And as any restaurant owner can, uh, knows, the lease could be you know, the thing that makes or breaks your business. But you're stuck. You have personal guarantees. You have term in your leases. The bankruptcy process enables you to shed all contracts, all leases that you don't like. So we went to all the landlords and said, listen, 
there's 100 locations nationwide. We'd like to emerge with 30 or 40 of them, but we need good terms. We need terms that reflect the reality of the prevailing market, the situation, and give us runway so that we can rebuild the business. So fast forward to the end of June, we had restructured about 50 leases. Uh, and at that point, towards the end of the bankruptcy, we're not the the owner at this point. Other people can show up and and you know bid in an auction to acquire the assets. Because it was in the throes of the pandemic, there weren't that many people, you know, aggressively looking to participate. So we Crazy were. Crazy enough, is what I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, listen, we were in pole position <laughs> at that point, and but, so the funny thing is, it took me, you know, twelve, fifteen years to build a portfolio of my existing assets, doing you know, hundred million in sales or whatever, um, for a lot of capital. We deployed a lot of capital over those years to build our brands, and in sixty days. We acquired, you know, a portfolio about the same size, 50 some odd locations, doing more in sales on a normalized basis at a fraction of the cost, right? So we suddenly doubled the size of our company with the LPQ acquisition. And I think, you know, that scale that we emerged with once the LPQ transaction closed kind of brought us to a point where, you know, we were bulkier and could sustain this difficult environment for a longer period of time because all the capital we would need to fund our existing business it was more readily justified with the addition of the LPQ portfolio, right? The capital being deployed for a portfolio twice as large made it that when the world emerged, we should, we should have a good amount of asset value. So that's the LPQ portfolio story. I mean, there's obviously a lot more behind the scenes. We, you know, we identified key players within the LPQ family, brought them on board from the early days. They helped rebuild the teams. And I got to tell you, at this point, you know, we felt really good to be part of the solution that was going to be, you know, bringing back jobs. We're going to have to hire 1,200 people. We're going to start paying landlords. You know, a lot of times there's not enough sympathy for the landlords, but they got bills to pay too. And obviously, we were going to start paying suppliers. So over the course of the summer, you know, July and August, we started reopening uh, most of the locations and uh, employing people and getting people back to work, which is great. It's an incredible story. You know, I really love really. that. And I remember, again, during these some of these darkest of days when so many people around us were, were, were shuddering, um, hearing the, uh, the news about you guys uh, taking a, uh, a rather proactive and I dare say aggressive uh, position, meaning to acquire stores. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett would be proud. <laughs> when others were fearful, you, I don't want to say you guys were greedy, but you guys were courageous, certainly. I think John's pop would be proud. I think he said, don't go in business. That was a crazy move. Look at that. And, and, and during the pandemic, he's doubling down. Um, no, really love it. And I want, I want to continue the conversation on your investments. Um, you just shared some information on, on looking you know, at restaurant concepts, obviously in a very unique environment. But, but overall, when, what is it you look for? Um, you know, when you're looking at restaurants, you're looking at tech, I think you commented on the restaurants, you know, you're looking through, you're doing your due diligence process, you know, any factors uh, that weigh heavily or maybe more heavily on your investment decisions uh, when you're thinking about the totality of your portfolio, whether it's restaurants, whether it's tech, you know, what are some of the key attributes that you're thinking about? Sure. Again, it's what I keep harping on, brand. Brand is everything, right? Like when you ask people, what does a brand mean to you? You know, the adjectives, the words that are thrown around are all about trust, confidence, consistency. You know, those things are very difficult to create from scratch. You know, you got to be really good or really lucky to create a brand that resonates with people. So while we've had some great success in launching our own brands, we also recognize there are unbelievable brands out there 
today that just need liquidity, right? Need capital to help them sustain through this time and also to prepare for growth for the future. So, you know, we look for brands that are stand out in whatever category they're in. When it comes to technology, and you know, and I should you know share with you, we've we've made a few technology investments over the last year or two. Um, we look for the same kind of thing, like what makes it super special that's not easily replicable, so they will have an advantage or an edge in the marketplace. The beauty of the technology business we've invested in was we have a captive audience of over 100 restaurants that will test, try, help evolve whatever the fun you know the the function set of the technology is. So one of the one of the technologies we've launched is Knees, uh, which is a recipe management system innovation tool. So you know everybody in the kitchen creates recipes and they're constantly evolving. This basically digitizes the entire recipe and innovation. Um, you know, process. It also, when you have multiple locations, lets you distribute any tweaks to the to any menu offering that you make, right? Ingredient changes or whatever. So it's a very powerful tool to help provide that consistency uh, and speed in any kind of uh, culinary offering. We also invested in uh, Blanket, which is a work management system. It's basically a tool that helps you, you know, manage your day to day operations in a digital format. So, you know. Who's doing what? Has it been done? Who's accountable? What are, what's going on with RM? All of that is captured to make operations easier for you. So anything that we're going to be investing in, one, we need to run it through our portfolio to make sure people really love it. It has to be special. And if it's not special yet, what does it need to do to be really powerful? Um, and if that's the case, then we'd be happy to participate. Well, you know, with capital and also strategic support to help, you know, embrace the technology and you know have the portfolio use it. I love it, John. It's uh, you know, it's it's obviously similar to what we've been doing over branded. We we share some uh, some investments together in the tech because uh, we're we're both uh, got a, a yep. restaurants in our blood a little bit, and we've uh, certainly have a passion for a technology. So I love it. You know, now uh, as a fellow operator, and now. Um, that you've acquired most of the restaurants in New York. <laughs> so you went from like 20 restaurants to like, you know, a couple of hundred. What keeps you up at night? What are the kind of things that um, with all this extra restaurants, is there something that you're like, holy cow, I can't sleep because? Is there something yeah. that's keeping me up at night now? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, um, we're talking about all the good stuff, obviously, and the, the, the prospects and the positive, but everything's challenging day to day. You know, we're in New York City. We have a huge concentration of restaurants in this market. And, you know, occupancy in midtown offices is under 10%, right? So there's no business. It's mm -hmm. very little business. And, you know, it, when re when sales drop from, you know, whatever the baseline is, they fall 50 or 75%, you're bleeding cash. It's not like you're breaking even at that level. Our business is a low margin business under normal circumstances. The, most of our expenses are variable, right, to a degree. We can manage our food costs, our labor costs. Rent is the big one. And uh, I think a lot of people are really having tough discussions with their landlords. Some landlords have proven to be incredibly accommodating and allowing us to weather this time together as real partners. Others have been more challenging. And whatever their reasons are, some are just big organizations that are not buckling and they're putting a maximum pressure to have us pay. Others are you know, just struggling because they too have to dip into their bank accounts to cover their mortgage and their taxes. So it's a very difficult situation. I lose sleep over how long is this going to be? You know, how long is it going to be before the world resumes? And, you know, back in last April, funny, I can't believe how long ago it was, but in April, yeah. May, 
we were hoping that by the end of the summer, things will start resuming. When Labor Day came around and things didn't really change, we're like, damn, this is gonna be a lot longer. Suddenly we've been went from being really positive to what if this lasts two years, how are we gonna survive? So, you know, most people are, at least in urban markets, not suburban necessarily, but in urban markets, your restaurants are bleeding today. They're losing cash. So we not we need to manage that runway to ensure we have the capital to get us through, to emerge. So when the world starts again, we're well positioned. Now, again, we're fortunate that we believe we are in that position, but it doesn't feel good to be bleeding at the restaurant level, right? So that's what I lose most sleep right now in terms of when is the world really going to start again and what is it going to cost us to get there? Yeah, me too. But I, you know, I, 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 I think um, I want to pivot a little bit and just go to uh, a, a big buzzword in the business right now and get your take on, uh, we hear a lot about ghost kitchens and cloud kitchens and virtual kitchens. You know, um, our last guest on, uh, on our podcast, we had Corey Manicone from Zool Kitchens, and we've known Corey for a long time. He's a, a fellow tech guy. And uh, he gave a shout out to you guys, actually, you and Orify. And he said that, they're, that you guys are doing something where he's coming in and helping you run kind of a, a virtual kitchen or a ghost kitchen out of uh, one of your locations with, with a whole bunch of your brands. Yeah. And I mean, it sounded incredible. It sounded like a super exciting yep. idea. I know we got a lot of buzz from people asking. So give us a little bit about that. And when can the, the New Yorkers out there uh, who are listening, when can we start ordering? What do you got going on? We're excited about it. Yeah, no, we love those guys. So, you know, Zool is basically a distribution channel, right? They're facilitating the content to get to the consumer. And, you know, we are creators of content. They're facilitating us getting our product to the end user. Mm -hmm. that, that's what that relationship is all about. And you're seeing that everywhere, right? You know, ghost kitchens, virtual concepts. That's all, you know, th those are partnerships that are facilitating our food getting to, to the consumers. And, I think in terms of, you know, what people want most and what the pandemic accelerated was, was the whole notion of convenience, you know, and delivery and, and getting products they want and not necessarily just from one location. How do you get food from multiple locations when you have different people that want different things? So Zool is trying to solve for that problem. but also trying to solve it in, you know, a safe environment, right? Going into these tall buildings servicing thousands of people, how do you get them the product they want? So our partnership is all about content creation and distribution to, to the consumers. Yeah, that's incredible. What Can you just give us a little insight? What what brands will you be featuring in this kind of uh, virtual? So you have one kitchen and you and you put like five of your brands in there. Is that the idea? Yeah. So we have um, we have locations close to each other. Mm -hmm. just, again, the, the brands that we could offer through Zool are Melt Shop, Little Beat, Feels Good Chicken, five guys lpq has not been part of this test case mm -hmm. just because it's newer to the portfolio and the idea is to coordinate production and delivery so that you know it's basically one delivery of multiple brands to office buildings in the area and zool has been facilitating these partnership with all these office buildings and landlords mm -hmm. uh, to provide an amenity basically to to the people their tenants in their building and we are leveraging our content, our portfolio, our restaurant brands, which are all proximate to these locations, to coordinate and deliver, you know, multiple brands to them. I love it. And by the way, I love that you said content because Jimmy and I are a big believer that these brands, these brands that people spend, I mean, you just you just said you spent millions upon millions of dollars and years of your life building these brands. It's content. Yep. You absolutely. Know? So it really is. 
as we've established your in, that you invest and partner in both technology companies and hospitality brands, you do it all. You really do. You're an amazing uh, entrepreneur. How do you feel this makes you a better investor and owner? Hmm. Um, well, again, the, the cool part of what we do is we just look for great opportunities, but it's all predicated on the teams that are there to you know drive the growth of their brands. We're supporting really talented people, right? So when it comes to a restaurant brand, the team is there running the brand and defining the brand. I, let's talk a little bit more about LPQ. LPQ, fantastic brand. Everybody has a story. Everybody's been there. They're like, oh yeah, I went on my first date with my now wife or there's some visceral connection people had with the brand. In 16, like I mentioned, it just lost its way for various reasons. You know, so now it's on us when we have our team in place. They have multiple work streams going right now to say, how do we make this a far superior brand than it ever was before? Fast forward to the, the Maison Kaiser transaction. It's important for me to be clear. We didn't acquire the Maison Kaiser IP. So we're not running Maison Kaisers, but we did acquire all of their locations in New York City. We, we, about a dozen, 12 of the 16 locations. Um, mm -hmm. Why do we do that? We did that because... Maison Kaiser, which was a new entrant into the marketplace, really did do things better in many ways than what LPQ had done. So they came in, they had bigger boxes, much better formats, right? They had a much bigger presence in grab and go with a much more bountiful product offering, merchandising, complemented by a dine-in business. Um, and that's really how the consumer had evolved. The consumer was more into the grab and go and sitting when they wanted to, right? So LPQ needed to evolve its model. We saw in the Maison Kaiser assets the opportunity to really learn from them how they did things and how do we take the best of each of the brands and emerge with a superior culinary and hospitality offering and then either one had it in its own. And that's our intention. So LPQ 2.0 will be a better version of either brand than standalone. The other thesis behind or the rationale behind the Maison Kaiser asset acquisition was we each had a 20,000 square foot production facility. LPQ had the 20,000 square foot facility in Queens, Maison Kaiser in Brooklyn, in uh, the Bronx. Neither one, and this is a typical thing that happens with brands that have commissaries or production facilities. Until you get to real scale, the cost of the fixed expenses for each of these, there's a burden on the portfolio, right? You got to get really big. So as an example, if we were running 50 million of sales through each of those facilities, what if we put 100 million of production through one of them? Suddenly, the fixed costs are amortized, amortized over a much bigger uh, portfolio that your cost of goods drops dramatically. And you know, we're estimating combining the production of those two facilities into one, we're going to save 5% on you know, $150 million portfolio. So that in and of itself you know, justifies this kind of a transaction. So you know, we, we just look for special situations with talented people, passionate people that are behind the brands that we can invest in and support, you know, to take it, to help it realize its potential. John, you're dropping knowledge, man. Dropping knowledge. I love it. I appreciate all of that. Uh, we want to kick into a, uh, a new segment that we have uh, on the podcast. Uh, for, it was built for season three. Uh, our producer and our head of Marcom at Branded, uh, Julie Zucker, created it based on some feedback from our guests. And quite simply, we created the podcast. We uh, So Shatsi and I you know, could talk to other people. We've learned along the way that our guests sometimes would like to ask us a question. So for season three, we introduce our newest segment, Talking Back. Uh, we give you the mic. Uh, actually, you have your own mic um, and a chance to ask us anything you like. Nothing is off the table. John, the floor is yours. 
So it's funny because, you know, when you look at my, our business, our profile, it almost mirrors yours in many ways. So, you know, I would be curious if I turn some of these questions back to you guys, you know, how do you identify what brands or technologies you want to invest in? Well, I think I'd probably just play the, play the tape and have say, listen what John had to say. Um, <laughs> but, but, but since I can't do that right now because we're recording, um, I, I guess what I would say is the following. Um, you're right. They, uh, I think, Branded and Orify both um, play in a very similar sport. And I think that is a... Um, uh, I think it's one of the reasons we we enjoy your team and you and and whatnot. Um, I feel on the restaurant side, a little different than than Orify. We tend to you know give each each brand their own uh, their their own identity, and we tend to operate many more single units. So of our 22 stores here in New York City. Um, Almost all of them are their own brand. They certainly fit into certain categories, Mediterranean, French Bistro, burgers. But at the end of the day, we've gone less with a multi-unit operator and, and, and more as a group that, yes, we have multiple units and brands. I guess I'd also then shift to the, on the branded investment side, uh, strategic side, that has really become the dominant business uh, that we're focusing on. And while we love our restaurants and we love the partners that we work with, I think for the, the amount of time and attention that Chats and I spend, it's really trying to curate tactical solutions for the industry. And our hospitality brothers and sisters really are the folks that we feel aligned with. And our number one rule about you know our investment strategy is that we call it, it has to be hospitality centric. It's got to be good for the owners and operators. We will not work with companies that are not good you know, for the owners and operators of these brands. Um, that is kind of in our DNA. And with that in mind, we are constantly reaching out to the community to make sure that we understand what their critical issues uh, that they feel technology, where we think technology could be a source to bring efficiencies. So I think we're a little heavier focused on the, on the tech side right now mm-hmm. and really launching a number of strategies uh, to be hopefully an advocate and an ally to the industry. Fantastic. Jimmy, I think you you said it fantastic. I just to add that I think, yeah, I think we are on the restaurant side a little bit more, not a little bit, a lot more focused on find an opportunity with a great, a great location and then come up with what, what concept, what food is missing in that area. And then we kind of come up with a name, <laughs> get a chef and do, you know, because we're a little bit more, uh, I guess, casual dining, you know, to the to the fine dining side. And, and we're certainly not in the uh, in the multi-unit um, kind of, uh, of model yep. for us, but uh, we do share a lot a lot of things in common. Uh, changing gears just a little bit, tech stack. If you could give operators listening one one idea that they've got to focus on right now on their tech stack. If you've got it, be like, look, I know that most operators think POS and that is their tech stack, but it's changed a lot. What would you say is the most important area? to focus on right now in your tech stack, if you can give operators one one piece of advice. Sure. Um, as you guys know, your, your restaurant operators, there's so many different components to you know technology now within the restaurant world. Historically, we were slow to adopt technology. So there's so many things you really should be considering to run your restaurant more efficiently. I think the thing that's on most people's minds today, though, is you know how do you really position to be successful in the off-premises world? Again, you know, um, consumers are going to be relying more and more on delivery. I think the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of ordering in. And uh, the current cost structure can be prohibitive to a lot of people. So, you know, how you really work on your online, your digital presence 
is a big deal. So you could one, take advantage of all the sales that are going through those channels, but two, also making sure that they're as profitable as possible for you as a restaurant. Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, yeah, Jimmy, I was going to say, John, John kind of, uh, you know, stole your line. I don't know if he stole it, but certainly it's one that we've been using a lot. And we say uh, it, it, the pandemic really changed nothing and has accelerated uh, you know, everything. It's really, uh, yeah. we're five years ahead where we, you know, we're going to be. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like we just did a Martin and Charlie Sheen commercial. Shats, yeah. that's my line. That's my line. Well, I'm the guy. That's my line. I think I screwed it up anyway. I think I screwed it up anyway. Did I say it right? I think I may have screwed it up. The pandemic changed nothing, but accelerated everything with emphasis. It's my line. Jimmy, and you say it so well. All right, listen, I got to get to the quick fire because it's the best segment because it's my segment. John, I'm going to ask you five quick fire questions. Don't think too quick. Don't think too hard. Answer whatever comes out. Okay, are you ready? Yep. What was your best pandemic purchase? Le pain quotidien, clearly. <laughs> That's a great one. I wish I could say something like that. I think I got a pair of headphones sir, from Amazon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where are you getting dinner from tonight? Um, actually, tonight we have plans to go to Toloache, our favorite Mexican on the Upper East Side. That's oh, my Jimmy, joint. Jimmy, that, are you kidding me? Those are my guys. Yeah, that's Jimmy's that's place. Julian Medina. Yes. Yeah. He's, Julian. He's great. What is your favorite food city in the world? I would say Paris, not just for the food, but the entire, you know, experience. Yeah, you just wanted to say something in Europe to be. Yeah. yeah, I get it. yeah, yeah. When, when travel resumes to complete normalcy, where is the first place you want to go? Oh, uh, the Greek islands. We go every summer. That There's no more beautiful place than Greece. Oh, my God. I'm dying right now. Paris and Greece. Yes. <laughs> if you were to challenge Jimmy or I to a game of spit, would you have better odds of beating? Oh, Shatsy, sorry, man. I think I could beat you. Jimmy, Jimmy is he's a, he's a fast twitch guy. I don't think I could beat him. In yeah, spin, yeah, so. yeah. Well, we, we've. I, I think we're on like episode thirty. I think literally. I think everyone has picked me in pretty much everything except for maybe Hangman. I think maybe. you're pacing yourself, Shatsy. You're pacing yeah. yourself. You're gonna, you're season gonna four, pick, Jimmy. I'm gonna four, kick your butt. Season four is gonna be all Shatsy all the time. Yeah. Uh, listen, John. We want to thank you so much for joining joining us on, on the Hospitality Hangout, uh, sharing your insights. And we appreciate the hard and good work that not, not only you and your team do for the industry during this time, but really always, uh, and for supporting this industry that we love so much. If you want to get in touch with John directly, you can email Branded. We do not give it our guests' uh, emails or cell phone. phone. I got a cell. We don't do that, I got we don't do right that anymore. Oh, we're not doing that anymore? Not anymore. Oh. Uh, but if you oh, want to get to John good. directly, you can email Branded at admin at brandedstrategic.com, and we'd be happy uh, to make the introduction. To our listeners, we want to thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to tune in. We know there are literally hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, uh, and, and we appreciate that you choose to hang out with us. Please join us the next time as we welcome our friend, Mr. Mike Bell uh, from Miso Robotics. It is a monstrous segment of the market uh, that people are looking at. Is it too early? Is it not too early? We're going to get into it with Mr. Mike Bell and talk about robotics uh, and how they're penetrating. And- yeah, that's going to be a good one, Jimmy, because I got to tell you, outside of virtual kitchens and ghost kitchens and cloud kitchens, a lot of buzz around, uh, a lot of buzz around robotics, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Shatsy, that's your best dance move. The oh ro- yeah, the robot. It's, it's your, yeah, it's I, I do. I, I yes. do the yes. robot, and I do that Michael Jackson. <laughs> yes, yes you do. Classic. 
Yes, listen, if you haven't uh, done so already, please uh, subscribe to our podcast. You don't miss out on any exciting guests we'll have coming up in the future. And better yet, invite a friend to hang out with us the next time. So until then, we want to thank again, Mr. John Rigos, uh, for joining us. This is Jimmy Frischling, your finance guy, uh, signing off and passing it to my boy, Shatsy. Hey, this is the restaurant guy, a.k.a. Shatsy from the Hospitality Hangout. John, it was great. You're doing amazing things. Keep up the great work. Uh, We're having trouble keeping up with you. Thanks again for uh, sharing time. My pleasure, guys. Great to spend the time with you. Thank you. Cheers. 